Hello and welcome back to our podcast. It's October, the season of mists and mellow fruitfulness and monsters, and we've got something a little bit special planned for you. Rather than our usual interviews, we're going to be bringing you our favourite scary stories from some of our favourite queer authors. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome you to Halloween at an Earful of Queer. Tonight's story has Oscar Wilde and zombies, and I really don't know what more a boy could ask for in a story, really. I'm so pleased to present the story. Uh, It's genuinely one of my favourites of all time. Um, It originally appeared in the collection Zombies Shambling Through the Ages. It was later reprinted in Wild Stories 2014, the year's best gay speculative fiction, and can now be found in uh, his debut collection, 17 Stitches. This is The Revenge of Oscar Wilde by Sean Eads, read by Jack Nolan. The Revenge of Oscar Wilde C'est lui, Dieu merci, je vous remercie, sans pour les santé de Monsieur O.W. He bows to acknowledge the appreciation from eight pretty damsels in distress. Two divergent groups of shambling, decomposing Lazarus men have herded them into a terrible trap in the narrow street between the Panorama du Congo and the massive barricading left wing of the Palidu Trocadejo. An hour ago they were modern, self-assured young ladies, quite unwilling to let the men, their fathers and brothers and husbands, sequester them further. They were armed, after all, and no doubt confident in the sturdiness of their parasols. Now the skeletal remains of those umbrellas lecture them on their foolishness. Shreds of fine, vibrant fabric flutter off the broken, twisted ribs, mimicking the crisp, massive flags high overhead on the Palais spires. But the women's gaze is not heavenward. If there is a god to them now, he walks this earth, and his name is Oscar Wilde. He has appeared seemingly out of nowhere and stands resplendent in an orange topcoat, a sunflower in the uppermost buttonhole, and an elegant, webbly, royal Irish constabulary, 45 CF revolver in his right hand, the weapon a gift from his lover, Bosey. The pretty poison he has picked and died from years ago. Wilde's head is bared to the breeze, his brown hair long and unkempt as in his younger days. Standing beside him, significantly shorter and appropriately serious and somehow vibrant in matching gray pants and shirt, is Albert Ayat. As of fifteen days ago, the gold medalist in fencing at this, the 1900 Summer Olympics here in Paris. The sword Ayat lifts in salute to the ladies now is sturdier than a traditional foil, but his accuracy and speed with it are unchallenged and deadlier for the heft. It cuts a nifty whistle in the air when his wrists flick it just so. I do not believe any of these Lazari, include the one who bit poor Boziayat. Nevertheless, ladies require attention. How dreadful! They are ten threatening from the left. I will take them, Ayat says. Wild listens, slow on the translation. Ayat is difficult to understand when he's almost breathless. Wild himself is nearly breathless, just from looking at Ayat. But all that must wait. Ayat maneuvers toward the larger group of Lazarus men in that peculiar fencer's stance that seems both noble and ridiculous. Wilde turns, his sigh quickly changing to a gasp as he weaves away from one clumsy hand. Decaying fingernails rip the sunflower from his chest and crush the petals. Three lumbering creatures growl at him and close. Wilde recomposes himself, brushes the flower's remains from the buttonhole, and retreats several steps, coolly checking the webley to find it loaded and in good working order. In the days before his downfall in England, when Bosey's father, the Marquis of Queensbury, threatened to assault him, 
Wilde threatened in turn to shoot him on sight. It had been a bluff, and Wilde was a very good bluffer. There was genuine fear in the little old bully's eyes when he thought the towering Irishman might kill him there and then. I should have, Wilde thinks. But in 1893 he was another man, civilized. Bosey's devoted fool. Wilde had been, and been with, many different men since then. Every did incarnation of his being lives in whatever man he is now. But perhaps men always remain, inside, with the first person they ever loved, and remain the men they were at the time of that love's experiencing. Why else is he out here once more avenging Bosey's honor? Bosey's father died many months ago. His passing did nothing to ease Wilde's troubles at the time. It did not elicit the strange recall to life he feels now. His greatest pleasure, before he shoots the nearest Lazarus man in the head, is imagining it is 1893 again and that Queensberry is charging toward him. A bullet could have undone much misery. Wilde smiles and returns the first resurrected man to his rest. He dispatches the second and third attacker in short order, aiming at Queensberry's face each time. It will take more than Christ to bring these Lazari back now, but perhaps resurrections was always the devil's own work. Behind him, Ayat has troubles. He is a genius with the blade. And a fine physical specimen, though Wilde cares little for the curly mustaches that age the Frenchman's face past its twenty-four years, hanging off his lips like wilted petals on an otherwise vibrant flower, careful and strategic in most circumstances, diagonal in his feints and parries, a chess-piece bishop with the sword of a chess-piece knight. Ayat has miscalculated. Wilde knows the root of his difficulties is the ladies and his eagerness to impress them. The young fencer leapt into the fray without realizing how the narrow confines and the Lazarai's sheer numbers cheat his sword of its principal attribute, length. Now nearly encircled, he cannot swing or stab his way free. A smitten fool, Wilde thinks. But Ayat looks too wholesome and fresh to garner further opprobrium. The fencer's youth and vitality have made Wilde's heart his peace. He reaches into his left coat pocket for bullets to feed the Webley, and then steps forward unflinching, gun outstretched. He sees Queensberry's right and left profile. He sees the back of Queensberry's head. Imagining well is the best revenge, and the Lazari sate is imagination. Several minutes later, when the last resurrected man is returned to the dust, Wilde can only marvel at the Webley, saying, A pen may be mightier than the sword, yet, but I believe I should like to compose only with this henceforth. There are several critics I've been meeting to send letters. Must you be so impossible, Oscar? It is an impossible situation, I yet. The ladies rush toward them, their white-gloved hands waving in welcome little surrenders to both men. The French women are very unlike the British, Wilde notes, especially in moments of excitement. Their initial hysterias are the same, but French ladies seem immune to fainting spells and are surprisingly adaptive to scenes of gore. Consider how they stand around these rotting corpses unfazed now that the danger has passed. Wilde accepts their praise, acknowledging his growing reputation as the knight-errant of this, the disturbed, exposition universale. It is as if no one remembers his dank, weary form haunting the city's cheapest cafes, a penniless, friendless alcoholic and shamed bugger, embracing a long and pathetic public suicide. Most likely, some of these same women spat at him on the street only a month ago as their fine, intact parasols darkened him with shadow. Their scorn was well-deserved and earned, 
Wilde thinks, shuddering at an image he conjures of himself laying insensate in a gutter. It has been over three years since he completed the jail sentence that destroyed his soul. Disgraced, humiliated, divorced. He has lived these years in European exile, determined to conclude it here in Paris. There had been presumptive talk among his friends that he should write again, that his wit would be a magic balm to erase the past and soar him to even greater heights. None of them understood. Not even his dear and loyal friend Robbie Ross, the impish, the impish boy who first seduced Wilde and unlocked the key of his being, stirring fresh life from an existence that was dead for reasons Wilde could not articulate to himself. He had a wife and darling children, and yet he was not a living man until Robbie embraced him. Robbie, who seemed to understand everything in the world in spite of his youth, or perhaps because of it. No, not even Robbie understood the prison experience, the years of hard labor, the hideous conditions that yet held sway over his mind. When Wilde dreams, he is there again in the prison yard watching fair-haired youths, bruised and worked until they shamble about, so very much like the creatures he and Ayat just put down. Yet every man kills the thing he loves, by each let this be heard. Some do it with a bitter look, some with a flattering word. The coward does it with a kiss, the brave man with a sword. Wilde shudders again, and the women mistake it for something else and offer their comfort. A glance at Ayat's dripping blade makes him remember the conclusion of his poem, his only attempt at writing since his release. The Ballad of Reading Gaul had been an anonymous hit with the public, and it had pleased him, the master of paradoxes, that everyone had missed the poem's ultimate paradox. Even Robbie and Bosey had missed the intent of that line, for every man kills the thing he loves. Had Wilde not also said, to love oneself is the start of a lifelong romance? The poem was a statement of intention, a suicide note that announced he planned to kill himself by living. He had embarked on this plan by drinking and whoring as much as he could, each day a meaningless and wincing preamble to a long and stuporous night. He wanted only to rot where he stood, and decay as he walked until nothing remained. Yes, it was a prolonged suicide and a successful one, until the phenomenon of the Lazarus men. Wilde may have seen the very first of their kind three weeks ago. He had fallen into a gutter across from a man who seemed quite dead, no doubt a murdered tourist. Wilde had even slurred a question to him about what it was like. Then the dead man rose and stumbled into the crowded night, a hallucination, or mere mistake, Wilde thought at the time, though now he is certain it was a Lazarus man, and he wonders if his drunken impotence then bears some responsibility for the present chaos, and for poor Bosey's condition. The ladies are lovely, are they not, Oscar? Ayat gallantly swipes the sword's blood across his right pants leg, and then kisses the hand of the girl he has decided, Wilde assumes, is the loveliest. The ladies are quiet, and indeed, all of Paris seems so. How many of its citizens have been killed, and killed again? He thinks of Bosey, stripped half-naked and sweating, in his sheets at the hotel, his throat bandaged from the bite that happened three days ago. He hears the young aristocrat calling out, fading away. The auditory vividness of it startles Wilde. What am I doing here? Attempting to avenge a death that has not even happened and won't happen. He wonders if this self-assurance is a bluff or a mad reliance on a technicality. There's one point of universal agreement in these days of penumbral confusion. A Lazarus man's bite is fatally transformative. Bosey will die, and yet he will not die. Wilde considers how best to excuse himself. Ayat will want to accompany him. Even the allure of beautiful willing women is not enough to sever the sudden warrior bond between them. They have now fought four battles together. 
I at having sought Wilde out for his renewed fame. Wilde was, of course, quite drunk when the first incidents occurred and multiplied. The attack at the Véhardron de Vissom supposedly killed over 300 people, though it had not proven easy to discern victims from attackers in many instances. Wilde realizes from what little he can remember that nothing short of divine providence acquitted his escape at the simultaneous attack on the Cham du Mars, for he had defended a child using the heavy cane of someone already felled. Wilde was a very large man, not athletic but powerful all the same, fueled by alcohol and rage, a powerful anti-societal vengeance suddenly electric in his spine. Wilde bashed heads with such furor that no less than ten skulls were certified split open from his blows, reflecting on it in later sobriety, as he wittily held court before admiring Frenchman and the child's injured mother. Bitten, poor creature, but at the time this was no cause for alarm. He realized he had no idea of the people he struck. Men only, there was at least that balm, were innocent people or their resurrected assailants. He had not touched a drop of alcohol since. See the ladies to safety, Ayat. I have urgent business elsewhere. The Olympic fencer protests, but there is nothing he can do. Wilde holds up an imposing, calloused hand. We will see each other yet, dear boy. You may be rest assured. Yes, Oscar. Ayat is breathless now, in a different way as he turns back to the women. Wilde smiles, wondering if the ladies are in even more danger now, but the Frenchman is young and no doubt lacks expertise. A pity, he thinks, checking the Webley again before starting off. Youth is wasted on the inexperienced. He could expect a tedious walk to the Hotel d'Alsace under normal circumstances, Paris's population having swelled by many thousands on account of exposition and the Olympics. Now the streets are shockingly deserted and the Eiffel Tower which Wilde considers an appropriate idol to worship, if these are indeed the last days, stands a lonely sentinel's watch from across the way. He walks faster than he has in years, and his heart feels it. He thinks of what he will say when he re-enters their room. He knows he must sound self-assured and fluid. Somehow he believes only a display of great confidence will keep Bosey alive. Bosey, you must not die, and you must not die as long as you have my love. Therefore, Bosey, I can assure you of a splendid immortality. Truth be told, while he had always been known as an amazing speaker, with wit at will, his speech is seldom, as extemporaneous as it sounds. He has held imaginary conversations with himself since he was a boy, working on lines and rehearsing clever dialogue and bon mots to summon only slightly altered according to need. His employment and delivery is so quick and seamless that it truly feels instantaneous, but true ease in talking comes from art, not chance. To paraphrase Pope, and he believes Pope is always better paraphrased than taken directly. When faced with subjects, he cannot even conceive of, much less practice for. Wilde knows he sounds like a stuttering fool, even a simpleton. Bosey's charming torment is his ability to create hour after unbroken hour of such instances, and Wilde humiliates himself in base incoherencies for the sake of love. The entrance to the Dalsas is like that of other hotels since the crisis, barricaded and patrolled by three armed and watchful men. Their guns train on Wilde before he's ever properly in shooting distance. Wilde stops and adjusts his posture and bearing to make sure neither in any way resemble the stumbling shuffle of the Lazare. He calls loudly to them in his Irish brogue and their fingers relax off the triggers. Monsieur Wilde, one says, nods politely and clears a path for him. Only decent theatres could afford armed gunmen to keep out the public. Plays might finally be performed in their perfection before absolutely no one. I've always had the unfortunate fact of drama that it must be witnessed. 
Uh, oui, monsieur, another guard says, and gives Wilde a glare that reminds him not everyone has buried his past with the risen dead. He hurries up to their room, Bosey's room, really, since he pays for it with money inherited from his father's estate. In bed, Bosey's head thrashes right and left, dank, blonde tresses sweated heavily to his forehead. Death's skeletal hand has gift-wrapped his throat in thick white gauze over a necrotizing bite wound. The rest of his body does not move, and this horrifies Wilde. It is as if the death has assured dominion everywhere else, and what life there remains is gathered in Bosey's head for a doomed last stand. Shots fire from outside the window. Wilde looks in that direction, sweating. So cold, Bosey says. Wilde whips off his topcoat and presses it like a blanket of fire across the slight body. Dear boy, Wilde says, have you been unattended all this time? I left specific instructions. Don't leave me again, Bosey whispers. Wilde swallows. How those four words recall memories both tender and hard. Bosey once had the flu and Wilde nursed him devotedly, never leaving his side as he suffered. Then suddenly Bosey recovered and Oscar was stricken by the same malady from the open window of his sick-room to their rented lakefront house. He endured the sound of his restored lover, frolicking jubilantly with several local youths, Bosey having left him to sweat out his own illness in parched solitude. Wilde forces his hands to open. He has clenched more fists in the last two weeks than he ever did during his three trials or even in prison itself. When the indignities and outrages he'd experienced built into a bitter torrent, he directed entirely at Bosey through a letter. Prison guards had finally allowed him to write something, and the resulting unsent letter presented an accusation, an entire trial, and a sentencing of Bosey for his crimes. He had fallen so far, and for what? Bright blue eyes, a pretty face that launched and sank exactly one ship, Wilde's own. Writing the letter released a rage he would not know again until his moment on the Sham de Mar. A love letter to my messiah, Wilde thinks to himself in derision. It was longer than any letter composed by the apostles, here in bed before him, is his love's Laodicean church. Can't breathe, Bosey says, his chest heaves in short demonstrative bursts. Wilde touches the handsome youth's forehead. Bosey, as long as you have my love, you will not die. I promise you immortality. Splendid immortality, Bosey. Oh, Oscar, Bosey says, coughs once, and dies. Fifteen minutes later, men carry the body outside, wild protesting. There is fierce debate about what comes next. A German doctor staying at the Delsace wants the corpse left inside for observation. Wilde, too, wants Bosey left in bed. In truth, he's anxious to return the body upstairs because he intends to disrobe and sleep with it, holding Bosey until he feels the life return again. He has seen this happen with his own eyes. The resurrection starts with a tremendous shiver and shake, like the uncoiling of some terrific spring inside the body cavity. The arms shoot up, and the knees bend as an extension of that energy. Meanwhile, a hissing noise comes from the mouth as dry and flexible and now unnecessary lungs try to fill. From Bosey's lips, the hiss will sound soft as poetry. One can survive everything nowadays except death. Wilde cannot remember when he said or wrote that. It does not matter. The Lazari have rendered it false. Hurry back to me, Bosey. Le corps doit être brûle. Wilde stirs from his grief and hope, rethinks what he had just heard, and translates. 
His hands move forward, shaking. Mabozi is to be burned. I'll not allow that. It is the government's orders. All dead must be cremated. When I am dead, cremate me. Wilde rubs his temples, fighting unwanted memories of Bozy's father. Around him an argument ensues between the hotel's manager and the armed guards. The rapidity of the exchange and Wilde's inner distractions trouble his ability to understand. The gist is, who shall take Bozy's corpse to the designated place of disposal? The crematorium is apparently not close, and transportation has become exceedingly difficult and confused. The government has commandeered all the motor vehicles, and there are things happening in the streets that have startled the horses. All serviceable horses are also government requisition that the Lazari are known to prey on them when human meat does not present itself. A coach now out of the question, the one choice seems to be carrying Bozy across the city on a stretcher. I will not allow my staff to be exposed to such risks. I hired you specifically. You hired us to guard the door. Well, we are guarding it. How much more do you want? Couldn't pay us enough. Defending a fixed position is easy. Being out in the open a moving target? Find yourself a few Americans. They seem foolish enough. Brave enough, Wilde says, bringing all attention where it properly belongs. On him. I've been to that exotic land, gentlemen, and dwelt among their roughnecks. I have met recently a young man from a place called Arkansas. How I should love to flee there one day. Americans themselves do not flee. They are a people blessed by the music of Apollo and the ingenuity of Hephaestus. They... One of the gunmen strikes a match and holds it over Bozy's body. No need to risk the crematorium. Get kerosene. We'll burn the body right here. In front of the Alsace? My God's a stench. No, my patrons cannot be exposed to such... The gunman's leader just smiles. To such what? Barbarism, indelicacy, inhumanity. It will be much worse when they see this thing rise to drink our blood. I believe you are confusing this hideous condition with vampirism. If you read the celebrated novels by my friend and countryman Stoker, you'll realize they are not the same, Wilde says. He is an English aristocrat, isn't he? He was a vampire in life. What he returns as won't be so different. Get the kerosene. Wilde's gaze shifts to the manager's reaction. The little Frenchman's forehead blisters with beads of sweat, telling Wilde that he has already decided to acquiesce. Before the manager can take a step, Wilde produces the Webley. The unexpected quickness of his hands, combined with his great height and bulk, stupefy them all. No guard even attempts to raise a weapon as Wilde's aim alternates fast before each face. Lord Douglas must go, then so shall I. You'd carry him alone through these streets. They seem quite deserted now. The manager attempts to plead with him, though Wilde knows this is only for the sake of politeness. Removing the bodies is chief concern, and Wilde was a considerable headache to him before the crisis. In his view, if Wilde leaves with the body, so much the better. He holds the Webley out a moment longer and then pockets it. He stoops, gathers Bosey into his arms, and, like some self-saddling mule, Wilde slings him over his right shoulder. The weight stoops him and antagonizes his back, but Bosey feels most familiar to him as a burden to bear. Wilde realizes he did harder labor in prison and ponders that God laid him low in order to toughen him for the present nightmare. It is a perfectly Protestant fantasy, but Wilde is determined to die a Catholic. He takes one step and then another. It will be a slow journey, but the weight is not manageable. Nothing truly is except for checking accounts. I shall entertain you, my dear resting Bozy, 
Wilde says some ten minutes into the journey, his pace has slowed even more because he stops constantly to turn and check his blind spots. The streets remain empty. But the Lazari have a way of suddenly swarming in spaces that were clear only moments ago. They move with no grace at all, but so slow and inexorable that their footfalls are soundless. Those wearing shoes make a tell-tale, scraping noise, but most come barefooted. The long dead come only on bone. They lumber, Wilde thinks. It's an odd word to describe a walking style, and he wonders at its etymology. He assumes it means wooden and stiff without joints, as how a tree might stalk its prey. But that association is too obvious, especially for English diction. Probably the meaning evolved from a root word long dead and resurrected in fifty other disparate expressions, having little to do with one another. The paradox of dead meanings, existing parasitical and hidden in living words, pleases him. Wilde smiles. Remembering his promise to entertain Bosey, he begins to gallop a bit, as if he bore one of his own small children on his back. But no, he shall not think of them now. Their mother is dead, and it is too horrifying to imagine them alone in another country, surrounded by Lazari. His voice booms out, turning the street into a stage. Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him Horatio, a fellow of infinite jest, of most excellent fancy. He hath borne me on his back a thousand times, and now... How abhorred in my imagination it is, my gorge rims at it. Wilde stops, winded, and kneels to gentle Bosey's body on the ground. He pants for air as he strokes the angelic face and adjusts the white gauze that has slipped to reveal the wound. Looking at the purple and red gouge, Wilde only now realizes his own lips were not the last to feel the heat and pulse of Bosey's throat before he died. Alas, poor Yorick, he whispers to himself, a famous speech from a play with many famous speeches. But why did his mind select that one? He is a living Yorick, looking at his dead Hamlet. Suddenly he is certain the world has gone terribly wrong, that Bosey should live many decades more, and that by standing here breathing, Wilde is a resurrected man as unnatural as the Lazare. I was dying in every part of me deserved the death. He feels, even in the face of Bosey's end, the complete bloom of health and vitality. This flower he'll keep in his buttonhole at all costs. He looks down at his lover and repeats Hamlet's speech up to the point where he sat Bosey down. As Wilde's fingertips stray into Bosey's sweat-stiffened hair, he finishes. Here hung those lips that I have kissed I know not how oft. He bends to kiss them now and forces himself not to recoil at their cold, rubbery texture. Bosey's mouth does not open, and Wilde's tongue encounters a barricade of teeth as perfect as prison bars. Come back to me, Bosey. Wake. How long will it take? Hours? Days? He pushes back from the body and ponders. Vaguely he hears the wounded gait of four, perhaps five of the resurrected approaching from the east. Blinking away a few tears, Wilde straightens his back and turns to look over his right shoulder. Nine, he counts in astonishment. Six appear quite fresh. They wear fashionable clothes, and are obviously recent victims of the very Lazari they have now become. The other three have spent at least ten decades in the ground, garbed as they are in shreds of Jacobin simplicity that doubtlessly resembled rags even a hundred years ago. Complete decomposition of the genitals at least manages to keep them from being altogether indecent. As he stands, the Webley trembles in his grip. He has already imagined the prospect of reloading. His fingers rub against each other in the left coat pocket. The pocket is empty. He does not have enough bullets for the situation.
How could I have made such an oversight? How many things never occur to him until it is too late? Sometimes his life seems nothing more than a string of neglected chances at foresight and planning. He thinks of Ayat, leaping into action without thinking. Oh, in Hades am I to criticize his judgment? Wilde closes one eye, raises the gun, and prepares to duel. The pistol's strong recoil sends a bolt of pain through his broad wrist. As the closest attacker drops, a third eye, newly minted in its forehead. Wilde retreats three steps, and then automatically circles closer, like an indecisively suicidal man. The brave imperative to assert himself between the Lazare and Bosey waxes and wanes against his terror. His second shot isn't good enough, the shoulder. The impact flings the Lazarus woman onto her back, and the entire right arm disconnects and shatters into splinters. Maybe it will be enough, but no. The remaining body rises a moment later, oblivious to its loss. The left arm juts out, fingers opening and closing a hideous mimic of the creature's lipless mouth. You're nearly as stubborn as Sarah Bernhardt, Wilde says, firing his third shot into her head. He shoots again and again. More careful with his aim, the bullets find and fell their targets, but five more Lazari approach, and one bullet remains. For myself, Wilde thinks, and even turns the gun around to stare down the barrel. A headshot will assure he stays down. But does he want that? The question surprises him so much he spares a second to consider it. In that space, he imagines himself rising, finding Bosey waiting on him. Is there love among the Lazari? There's clearly greed and gluttony and endless hunger. Is love so different than these things? Is love as he's known it any less base? Sweat breaks across his face and pools in cheeks that have become sallow and pitted with age. So hideous, he thinks staring at the monsters as he backpedals. The notion that he could become one of them willfully, that he would be mindless in his carnal pursuits. My God, he realizes. He already mirrors them. He has lived their existence even before his reputation and his fortune fractured. He had only better skin on a better public face. The gun goes to his temple, his eyes wincing shut against the planned violence. Then he hears a familiar whistle and looks to see the head of the Lazari furthest from him go flying across the street. The decapitated body drops, revealing Ayat in all his glory, holding a sword so ostentatious that Wilde can only marvel. He brings the sword back to him and leaps into a pose. A la coquette. Wilde cries out, drops the webley, falls to the ground and kicks away from a lunging Lazarus man. The remaining four step over Bosey and swipe down at Wilde's clothes. Now it is my turn to save you, dear Oscar. Ayat shouts as he thrusts the blade through the next man's neck. An elegant twist turns the blade flat, and with the slightest flick the steel sweeps away bone and flesh. The head lolls backward and tumbles atop the body that collapses underneath it. Oscar, what are you doing? Move! Wilde has scrambled back as far as he can go. The Lazari have forgotten him, pivoting to indulge Ayat's fervor. Move, he thinks. He looks for the Webley. It is there, out of immediate reach. His gaze trains on Bosey. The great coil has sprung inside him. The body twitches with new energy. A scene such as only Mary Shelley could imagine. For the second time in half an hour, Wilde thinks of a scene out of literature and inverts his role inside it. Asthete, poet, playwright, doomed martyr, all the identities he has created for himself and in reality... He is Bosey's construction entirely. He is the creature watching his creator come to life. 
he bares his neck for Bozy's teeth. Oscar! Somehow, Ayat has lost his sword. It rattles across the ground with a sound that makes wild wince. It is a sound like a perfect gem, being dropped on the floor and stepped upon until it powders. Bozy hisses and sits up. Damn it, Wild, your gun! Shoot something! Ayat is breathless again. His French is so hard to understand. Wild takes a deep inhale, wondering if he'll miss it. Breathing. Not here, perhaps. The air is wonderfully poisonous in Paris. He much prefers England, where they show their toxins with more discretion. In the heart. Bosey's eyes are pale blue cataracts that fix on Wilde's slumped body. He crawls, still hissing, his body so lithe and exotic and seductive that Wilde's erection actually hurts in his pants. Take me, consume me, he thinks. There seems so little remaining to him that Bosey has not already devoured. Why shouldn't the flesh yield too? Wilde begins to undo his shirt. Ayat, meanwhile, dodges one clumsy blow and throws himself along the ground, rolling to escape being surrounded. He rolls all the way to his fallen sword and takes it up. Wilde's attention flickers a moment at him. Beautiful, daring Ayat. So much more worthy than Bosey in nearly everything, a man of hard effort and harder employment. Not the bratty, untalented poet son of a crazed aristocrat, himself possessed of terrible poetic pretensions and sensibilities. When I am dead, cremate me. He looks at Ayat and then back at Bozy and wipes away a tear with the back of his hand. Poor boy, raised by such a tyrant, unlikely touched by inherited madness. It excuses everything. It must. Ayat beheads the remaining Lazare, the last one he toys with, dancing just out of reach as leisured swipes sever the right hand and then the left, followed by both arms at their shoulders, by making an exaggerated cleaving swing. He whittles away the Lazarus man, clipping extremities as a tailor might break off an excess of buttons. It is an unexpectedly cruel performance only Bosey could appreciate. Do you know what sword this is, Oscar? It is the Austerlitz blade, the personal sword of Emperor Napoleon, forged by the great Pignet. How I long to hold it as a boy every time I saw it at the army museum. I am a god with this weapon. I am... Who is it to you, British? I'm not British, dear boy. I remember now, yes, I am Saint-Georges. He delivers the decisive blow and then waxes on, addressing his enthusiasms to the blade at such lengths that it takes a minute to realize wild silence. He turns and shouts something wild cannot understand. Gibberish is gibberish in any language, though he wonders how it must look, with Bosey nearly on top of him and wild shirtless, waiting for the dry teeth, imagining how his own blood will warm his lover's cold mouth. Oscar! Ayat rushes toward them. Wilde realizes his intent and something in Bosey realizes it too. His muscles still have strength and quickness to them. He turns into Ayat's charge, dodges at the last moment and bites into the Frenchman's leg. The Austerlitz blade strikes the building a mere inch from Wilde's left ear and again falls abandoned. No, Bosey! Wilde cries. His lover smothers over the shrieking fencer whose arms flail in impotence without a weapon. No! Wilde staggers up a walrus in his movements. He seizes Bosey by the waist and literally throws him to the side. He finds Ayat on the ground, coughing up blood. Bosey had started to bite his throat open. Not like this, Ayat manages. Kill me, Oscar. I don't want to come back. All men kill the thing they love. Bosey rolls over. The cataract gaze locks onto them as he hisses. Ah, I can't, Ayat. 
if you love me, Ayat says, the brave man with a sword. But I'm not brave, Ayat, Wilde says, his melodious voice cracking. I'm not like you, I cannot use the sword. The fencer has no idea what he's talking about. I cannot even give you a kiss, but here, he says, forcing the webley into the Frenchman's hand as Bosey manages to stand and shuffle toward them. Oscar, we'll do it together. I shall help you, if you lend me your strength. Oh, I'm a fool. What strength have you left to lend? I'm a pitiless borrower, Ayat. Here, both our fingers on the trigger. Ayat's face shatters with the blast. Wilde does kill Bosey afterwards, but not straight away. He takes up Ayat's stolen blade and breaks into the nearest building and climbs the stairs. From the second-floor window, he watches Bosey walk about in what appears to be stunned circles for twenty minutes before he suddenly decides on a direction. From his vantage point, Wilde detects the reason for this sea change. A child, lost and terrified, is standing in the middle of the road a block over. Bosey has caught the scent. Wilde's breath hitches, and he knows what must come next. He cannot permit such an outrage. The memory of the deed lingers and refuses to stale. What's so horrifying is the freedom each sunrise brings since Bosey's beheading. He is at first philosophical about it, telling himself that he now realizes death is merely the state in which the striving mind finally perceives the nothingness it has always suspected was there. He is a delight among the refugees fleeing across France to the Channel, an absurd entertainer, a legend, a perfect Christ. The best way to conquer death is by not dying, he says, and somehow to the people who have lost their friends and families, their very future, to the Lazare plague. This statement proves the very essence of cheer. There are rumors everywhere. The horror that infected France has moved across Europe, and there are reported outbreaks in England itself. This news makes the channel crossing very tense, as someone announces the British military will either sink the vessel before it docks or else execute them all as soon as they got off. This image is so vivid to mad minds that several men and women jump overboard at the halfway point and are soon out of sight. Swimming. Swimming. Wilde, however, hopes the outbreak has happened in England. He counts on it, for Bosey's death troubles him with freedom. He senses his past life with Bosey no longer counts, and that he can now live unfettered, almost. One chain remains about his neck, perhaps around Bosey's too, if his spirit lingers. But Wilde knows how to break it, and so he crosses back to the country that persecuted him. All of Western Europe seems to be accompanying him, and nothing staunches the invasion. Wilde encounters no customs clerk to whom he can declare his genius, or Ayat's sword, or the more precious thing he carries in a black satchel. Wilde steps onto English soil. Three years after vowing to never return, in a way he has not broken his pledge. The Wilde who made it no longer exists. When I am dead, cremate me. Months ago, Wilde heard and delighted in a rumor that Bosey's father, despite the wishes stated in his absurd poem, was not cremated but instead buried vertically with his head pointing down, his gaze directed at more eternal fires. If true, his plan may work. Queensberry's body is still far away on the estates of Kinmount House in Scotland. It will be an arduous affair getting there, especially if every city in England and its countryside team with Lazare. He already knows this must be the case. The wind is tinted with a familiar chill and scent, even this close to the sea. Survivors call it the Lazare's breath. 
and it is a combination of mass, mobile decomposition, and a sweating terror. Wild watches the refugees flock west, thousands of them with thousands more on the way. They are heading for larger ports with ships. They will storm if necessary to seek shelter in America. Wilde remembers his own trip there decades ago as he stalks northward, stopping just once to set the satchel down so he can grasp Ayat's sword with both hands. It did belong to Napoleon, after all. Who is Wilde to deny anyone a thwarted dream? And perhaps the Emperor, too, has risen, and even now stumbles and slouches through the Arc de Triomphe in an abandoned Paris, his hand still famously tucked into his shirt, disconnected from any arm. With a cry... He takes the sword and plunges it into the ground, releasing it to quiver like a living thing, reveling in territorial conquest and triumph. Wilde admires the weapon's grace and beauty, forged from steel and silver, shining with gold gilt but bronzed with dried blood. Taking up the sword again as he retrieves the satchel, he says, Bosey, we are on our way. The journey takes weeks. The sword conquers armies of Lazare. Wilde lacks Ayat's skill, but his stamina and ruthlessness, powered by a monomaniacal fixation, keep him moving. It is more exciting, more electrifying to dispatch British Lazare. He no longer even sees the business as gruesome. Each is a small revenge and freedom, leading to the greater one ahead. If doubts possess him, he need only sleep to have all confidence restored. Each night his dream is exactly the same. He stands in reading prison, watching a young man's execution. He cannot remember the man's name, only that Wilde has sworn eternal love to him. The youth is hanged until dead, and then his body is lowered to the ground. Almost at once, the body resurrects and becomes vibrant. Shocked, the prison officials hang him again. The body thrashes on its rope endlessly, and the warden and all the guards flee in terror. The gates are left open, and everyone escapes except Wilde, who stands pressing his forehead against the man's bound legs and weeping. We are here, Bosey. The grave of Bosey's father, John Sholto Douglas, Marquis of Queensbury. When I am dead, cremate me. Perhaps the monster's wishes were carried out after all. Perhaps digging will reveal a vessel of ashes where the body should be. Wilde strikes his spade into the earth, snarling at the labor of it, willing the dirt to yield. A half hour later, he finds signs of, oh, wonderful paradox, life. The rumors are true. Bosey's father has been buried vertically upside down. There is no coffin at all, just a body jammed into the earth. Wilde's spade finds the feet, and the feet are moving. A thin layer of dirt pulses like a beating heart, and Wilde clears it to reveal two worn and filthy souls. He gasps, falls back, and hastens to the satchel. He pulls Bosey's head from within and sets it atop the tombstone. Now at last I understand, Salome. Wilde says, considering the head. The desiccate blue cataracts leer straight ahead at Wilde as he resumes digging. Queensberry's legs kick in greater strides as Wilde disencumbers them. It takes almost three hours before he can drag the body out of its hole. The Marquis is clearly ravenous, and Wilde recognizes a hunger that is unchanged by death. Had he been buried like a normal person, he would have clawed his way to the surface weeks ago. Wilde swallows, angered by his fear of the familiar, rotting face. He did not come all this way to indulge fear. Queensberry suddenly lunges stiffly at him, and Wilde shrieks and bashes his head with a powerful backhand. The fear goes, replaced with a long-nourished rage that seizes all of his being. He will use the sword. There is no God, 
wild thinks. And if there is a god, what he does next is perhaps not technically a sacrilege. An immorality so vile that even the most decadent of men would turn from the very idea in horror. It is not necrophilia if the body is resurrected after all, and he pins Queensberry into the dirt before the grave and shames the father in front of the son. When it is finished, he takes Ayat's sword and beheads the Marquis and puts it on the tombstone next to Bosie's. The air around Kinmount House fills with laughter and the echo of heavy footfalls. It is wild, his long arms swaying in the air as his body writhes, a man veiled with life, and he is dancing, dancing, dancing. That was The Revenge of Oscar Wilde by Sean Eads, read by Jack Nolan, and that's from his collection 17 Stitches, which is out now in paperback and audiobook from Lathe Press. Sean Eads is a reference librarian living in Denver, Colorado. Uh, his first novel, The Survivors, was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award. Uh, his second novel, Lord Byron's Prophecy, was a finalist for the Shirley Jackson Award. Uh, his many stories have appeared in such anthologies uh, as Zombies Jumbling Through the Ages, A Kaleidoscope, and Equilibrium That Returned. Uh, besides writing, he enjoys playing golf and watching University of Kentucky basketball games. His favourite writers and influences include Herman Melville, Ray Bradbury, and William Faulkner. And you can find more about Sean at seaneads.net. And now, time for some real-life horror. Playing you out for tonight, we're delighted to bring you a short excerpt from Queer Hauntings by Ken Summers. Uh, it's a wonderful collection combining historical fact and unearthly encounters to explore eerie locales with a queer bent. Behind the shadows and doors of societal homophobia hide pink phantoms and lavender apparitions in cities and towns spread across the globe. From haunted bars in New Orleans to an old theatre in London, this guide encompasses the other side of the supernatural. It's out now from Lethe Press in paperback and audiobook, and it really is a great collection, so do check it out if you like what's coming up. Uh, or go seek out more about Ken Summers at moonspenders.com or at moonspenders on Twitter. New Orleans, Louisiana. Spirited behavior. Famous phantoms of the Big Easy. It is common for multiple souls to haunt a dwelling. The many layers of lives transposed over each other provide many opportunities for various generations to haunt after death. However, a place can be haunted by seemingly unrelated people. New Orleans is known to be one of the most interesting, if not most haunted, cities in the United States. Its rich history and metaphysical atmosphere has attracted crowds from around the world for decades. The city is steeped in ghostly tales and is host to numerous ghost tours. A watering hole in the Big Easy provides a perfect home for restless spirits. One Bourbon Street locale hosts a number of wayward specters. Billed as the best gay bar in the French Quarter, Café Lafitte in Exile is possibly the oldest gay bar in the country. The drinks are plentiful and inexpensive, and the entertainment is non-stop. It also was once the watering hole for several famous people. In fact, some of them haven't quite left. The two-story Café Lafitte in Exile on Bourbon Street can easily be confused with Lafitte's blacksmith shop. While the two bars are separated by a few blocks of buildings, they once shared a common identity. Shortly after Prohibition was repealed, the original Café Lafitte opened in what was once the blacksmith business of noted pirate Jean Lafitte, 
around 1936. The French structure, built in 1772, is one of the oldest remaining in New Orleans, having survived two devastating fires in the late 18th century. It was frequented by a mixed crowd of rich diversity, though gay men and lesbians were predominant. The earliest manager, Mary Collins, was a known lesbian. Although Lafitte's was never officially declared a gay bar, New Orleans natives were aware of its reputation. The sexual proclivities of its patrons were kept to a whisper. The welcoming ambiance and bountiful liquor allowed everyone to enjoy the atmosphere equally. In the 1950s, tension began to mount between gay and straight New Orleans. Tom Kaplinger, the manager and owner, met with resistance from the landlord, who was eager to see the queer crowd dispersed. When the lease came up for renewal in 1953, Café Lafitte was turned down. Yet the owner and his patrons were undaunted. Kaplinger ventured down Bourbon Street to reopen his bar in a new locale. It was dubbed Café Lafitte in Exile, paying homage to their eviction and the irony of Captain Lafitte's own exile to Galveston, Texas, in 1817. The grand reopening of Café Lafitte was an affair to remember. Customers donned brilliant costumes, invited by Kaplinger to dress as their favorite exile. Among the uncanny visages in the crowded establishment that night were those of Dante, Wilde, Napoleon, and dozens of other banished notables. At the height of merriment, Kaplinger quieted the crowd. Costume patrons gathered around a dark gaslight as the owner gave reverence to the many displaced people of the past. In memoriam, the lamp was lit as an eternal flame, memorializing the occasion and plight of the revelers who followed Café Lafitte to its newfound home. Throughout its history, many well-known guests have visited the establishment on Bourbon Street. William March, author of The Bad Seed, spent his final years in New Orleans and was a regular patron until his death in 1954. Two other famous authors also found comfort within its earliest walls, Truman Capote and Tennessee Williams. Born on September 30, 1924, among the lazy streets of the Big Easy, Truman Streckfus Persons spent the first four years of his life in Louisiana before being whisked off to Alabama following the divorce of his parents. He spent his formative years being shuffled from place to place by his mother and her whims. Truman's last name changed in 1933 when he adopted the surname of his mother's second husband, Joseph Capote. At the age of 17, he began his most earnest pursuit of writing and took a job with The New Yorker. After churning out several short stories published in respected magazines, he was accepted to Yaddo, an artist community in Saratoga Springs, New York. He soon began work on his first novel, Other Voices, Other Rooms, and traveled back to his boyhood home of New Orleans for research. Here, in 1945, he rented a room located at 711 Royal Street, overlooking the French Quarter. It was his habit to write throughout the nighttime hours and sleep during the day. Occasionally, he would take a break from his literary work and find himself down the street at Lafitte's for a drink or two and a little nocturnal entertainment. Capote made an honest effort to explore other creative talents while in the French Quarter. He took to painting street scenes and selling the mediocre renderings to tourists in the city. Unfortunately, his illustrational talents weren't as good as his writing, though he later remarked on his time in New Orleans as being one of the great carefree moments of his life he returned to New York in 1946 to complete his manuscript. Throughout the remainder of his life, Capote visited Louisiana and Café Lafitte in exile many times. 
He considered his birthplace to be his spiritual home, and referred to the French Quarter as the last frontier of Bohemia. As his life progressed into alcohol-induced dementia, his, vi his final visits to the city on the Mississippi River Delta were likely a blur. Truman suffered from hallucinations and was unable to continue with his literary career. He died in Los Angeles, California, at the home of Johnny Carson's ex-wife, Joanne, on August 25, 1984, at the age of 59. One year before his death, Capote wrote a touching tribute to a fellow writer in Playboy magazine. The two men not only shared the same career path, they each shared a similar fondness for New Orleans and the bar on Bourbon Street. Unlike Truman, Tennessee Williams had closer connections to Café Lafitte. Thomas Lanier Williams III was born in the town of Columbus, Mississippi, on March 26, 1911. He spent his early years in the Magnolia State before the family followed his father, a traveling salesman, to St. Louis in 1918. Soon after, Thomas was diagnosed with diphtheria. He spent two miserable years suffering from paralysis of the legs due to the condition. His mother encouraged him to read and write stories as means of escape, and gave him his first typewriter at age 13. Teenage life was troubling for the young man, caught between a stifling mother and an abusive father. His sister Rose was diagnosed with schizophrenia and suffered greatly from the illness throughout her youth. Escape from family mayhem finally came in 1930 when Williams attended the University of Missouri. After only one year of studies, his father forced him to return home and work in the shoe industry. He disapproved of his son's literary aspirations, yet Thomas felt it was his only escape from harsh reality. He would spend his nights continuing his writing until the lack of sleep led to heart complications and a nervous breakdown. It was only then that his father relented and allowed Thomas to return to college. Other boys on campus jokingly nicknamed him Tennessee for his heavy southern drawl. He liked the name so much that he kept it. In 1937, Rose was given a frontal lobotomy. The operation went awry, leaving her permanently incapacitated. Tennessee never forgave his parents for their decision and held on to the guilt and pain of losing both a beloved sister and a dear friend. Falling into a deeper depression, Tennessee turned to alcohol. His first play, The Glass Menagerie, was somewhat autobiographical, and like his character Tom in the story, he left home and never returned. Tennessee found himself in the French Quarter of New Orleans in 1939, living in a small apartment at 722 Toulouse Street. It was only a four-block walk to Lafitte's. Many nights were spent drowning his sorrows in whiskey at the old bar. After moving to a new place at 632 St. Peter Street, he befriended the new owner, Tom Kaplinger, and began work on a new play, A Streetcar Named Desire. He finished his masterpiece in the mid-1940s when he moved to Key West. Not long after achieving success with Streetcar, Williams met a Navy veteran by the name of Frank Merlot. The two formed a fast bond, which became Tennessee's most memorable committed relationship. Merlot passed away in 1961, spiraling Tennessee's depression downward and increasing his dependence on alcohol. He remained in Key West and traveled frequently. After a brutal beating where Tennessee was the victim of a hate crime in 1979, he left Florida and led a nomadic existence. His early demise occurred at the Hotel Ellisee in New York City's Manhattan. On the night of February 25, 1983, Williams lay in bed, administering himself eye drops. 
It was his habit to place the cap between his lips. As he leaned his head back, the cap slipped into his throat. He tried in vain to make noise and draw attention. Incapacitated by alcohol and sedatives, Tennessee slowly suffocated. He was buried at Calvary Cemetery in St. Louis, though his wishes were to be buried at sea in the Gulf of Mexico, near the approximate location the gay poet Hart Crane, one of his greatest influences, had leapt to his death from a cruise ship in 1932. Both Tennessee Williams and Truman Capote achieved fame in the literary community. Their paths crossed on several occasions, leading to an inevitable friendship between the two gay authors. At times, William was a staunch critic of Capote. Each man would often make jibes at the other's expense. As the grip of alcohol overcame them both, their camaraderie gradually deteriorated. Yet each found comfort and security in the atmosphere of taverns and bars. Not surprisingly, the two seek the same solace after death. Present-day guests mingle with locals at the first-story bar of Café Lafitte in exile and watch the crowds pass along Bourbon Street from the wrought-iron balcony upstairs. The eternal flame burns brightly over fifty years after its ignition. Its soft glow acts as a beacon to the dearly departed. Figures have been spotted wandering the balcony, sometimes even stopping to wave at a tourist before vanishing. The downstairs center bar, where go-go dancers sway between tumblers and televisions, seems to be a popular place for a ghost or two to catch a drink as well. In life, Tennessee Williams would often be seen sitting at the far end of the bar, quietly nursing a cocktail. Today, the occasional customer or employee will catch a glimpse of the famous writer sitting in his usual seat. He leans against the nearby wood post with a vacant expression across his face, perhaps contemplating his worst fear going insane. Within earshot, the spirit of his former friend Truman Capote has found eternal respite. His ghost can be found spending time in the stairwell, striking up conversations with mortal souls who pause long enough to listen. Not all the spirits in Café Lafitte are notable names. A rather frisky spook called Mr. Bubbles is known to wander the building, occasionally pinching customers playfully on the rear. The Big Easy guarantees its guests a good time, whether they're seeking ghosts or bottled spirits. Tourists may not be able to snag an autograph, but at Café Lafitte, patrons might wind up face-to-face -face with a deceased celebrity. Café Lafitte in Exile, 901 Bourbon Street, New Orleans, Louisiana, 70116, area code 504-522-8397 www.lafitte.com That was an excerpt from Queer Hauntings by Ken Summers and read by Robert M. Clark, and it's out now in paperback and audiobook from Lathe Press. Ken Summers is a paranormal historian, writer, and Fortean researcher. He was born and raised in Northeast Ohio. He's always held a strong interest in ghosts and unexplained phenomena. Over the last 18 years, Ken has researched and investigated countless local hauntings and strange historical incidents. He has appeared on WWS, Fox 8 and WOIO in conjunction with new stories dealing with local ghosts, and has been featured in both Cleveland Scene Magazine and the Akron Beacon Journal. Ken served as Treasurer and Vice President of LGBU Kent, now Pride Kent, at Kent State University in the late 1990s. As an out-gay paranormal investigator, he began questioning the existence of queer ghosts after an encounter with the apparition of a friend who committed suicide in 2002. 
What began as a series of blog posts about LGBT ghosts became the book Queer Hauntings in 2009. Ken is currently a ticket agent for a scenic railroad and senior editor for Week in Weird. He lives in Northeast Ohio. He's always on the hunt for other LGBT ghost stories, so if you have any leads or stories, he'd love to hear them. Please do get in touch at moonspenders.com or at moonspenders on Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of An Earful of Queer. If you enjoyed what you heard, then please do subscribe, follow us, whatever the appropriate button is uh, for wherever you're listening to this. Uh, And check back next month when we return with another guest. Uh, you can find out all about our upcoming guests on our website at anearfulofqueer.weebly.com uh, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, and if you have questions that you'd like to submit to our guests, then please do send us them. We'd love to feature them. Uh, it takes the pressure off me, means I have to invent less questions, and it means that you get to be involved as well. Uh, the website will also have details of where you can find out more about the musician that we featured on the show today. And whilst we're on the subject of music, we need to give a shout out to Purple Planet, who provided all of our theme and incidental music on the show. They're a really great resource, and uh, you should definitely go check them out. I've been Matthew Bright, and if for whatever crazy reason you finish this episode more interested in me than my guest, uh, then firstly, I'm probably not doing things right, but never mind. <laughs> uh, you can find out more about me at my website, which is Matthew with two T's bright.com or on Twitter, uh, which is at mbrightwriter. Uh, when I'm not making a fool of myself on podcasts, I do occasionally write and edit things, um, and there's all sorts of stuff that you can find out about that on the website. Uh, do forgive my awkwardness, I'm British. Uh, we don't do self-promotion very well. So all that remains for me now is to say thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. <laughs> <laughs>